today we have an amazing show for you. For our next Unicorn series, I interview Flock Safety's CEO, Garrett Langley, about his controversial startup, which records license plates into a database to help reduce crime. Coincidentally, they just announced today a $150 million Series D. So they're not the next unicorn, they're today's unicorn. But before that, we've got rapid fire news for you. You've been giving me great feedback on me talking about the news. Well, it's a packed news day. Bezos has gone to space. Robinhood is offering 35% of its IPO shares to retail investors. And Circle, the stable coin that's going up against Tether, has done their attestation. And it is night and day compared to Tether. As well, the Far East crypto crackdown has continued and why that's a good thing for crypto. Finally, my boy Rowan Trollope has sold 5.9, which he talked about in a previous episode, to Zoom for almost 15 billion. Oh yeah, and Keith Ruboy's open store went live. Stick with us. Season three of The Next Unicorns is brought to you by Embroker's startup insurance program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off traditional insurance today at Embroker.com slash twist. And while you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code twist. LinkedIn jobs. A business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. Post your first job free at LinkedIn.com slash unicorn. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that lets you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Your first app is free forever, and right now, Odoo is offering $1,000 off your first implementation pack at odoo.com slash twist. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twist. And... Learn how your startup can build security foundations from day one. Sign up for a live jam session with Vanta co-founder and CEO Christina Cassiopo on Wednesday, July 21st at 10 a.m. Pacific by going to launch.co slash Vanta jam. All right. In our first story, obviously, Bezos has launched himself successfully and three others into space on Blue Origin's new Shepard. It just happened this morning. Some background. This is the new Shepard's 16th launch overall. The four crew members included Bezos, his brother Mark, and Mary Wallace Funk, who goes by Wally Funk. If you don't know who she is, um, she is an 82-year-old former pilot who in the 60s passed the rigorous NASA astronaut criteria, but was denied the chance to go to space when the Mercury 13 program was disbanded 60 years later. She is now the oldest person to ever fly to space and the 66th woman in space in total congratulations to wally funk uh and uh a trust fund kid named oliver demean who is 18 years old from the netherlands he is the youngest person to ever go to space so on this one flight you have the youngest and the oldest that's kind of neat oliver took the space of the previous 28 million dollar auction sale because that rich person i guess had a scheduling conflict and couldn't go on this one so it's going to go on a further one uh, rich people problems as a combination not only are they individually the youngest and oldest but obviously uh, in a combination, it would be the largest distance between the youngest and oldest person on a manifest. So, uh, but that will change. You will have a, a great grandmother, a grandfather, and a great granddaughter, a grandson. At some point, you can 
if this keeps up. Uh, Jeff Bezos, he's had dreams of going to space for decades. Uh, he even spoke about it in June 2000 in this interview with Charlie Rose, and he has hair on this clip. Uh, I'll talk to you on the other side of this 60-second clip. If you weren't the CEO of Amazon.com today, what would you like to do or be? Well, so if, if I could do anything... And it turns out this is a very hard technical problem. Yeah. So I, I, I don't actually hold out great hopes. But if I could do anything, I would like to go uh, help explore space. It, tell me more. I mean, what would you do? How would you go about it if you weren't doing this? Well, I, you know, the, 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 the picture I have is that I would get in a rocket ship, um, <laughs> go up into space, and, like, you know, go check out a few things. Now, <laughs> this, this is why I mentioned at the beginning this is a very hard technical problem. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but, I, but I would think if you, if you put your mind to it, you could probably figure out a way that we could do this. Well, it, it, it's very hard. Your board of directors, it's, it's, your board of directors, and your stockholders might not be it's happy. It's very hard. It's yeah. really, I mean, so you know, who knows what twenty years from now, if there are some significant changes in the technology, maybe such things will get easier. But we haven't made significant improvements in you know space transportation systems really since the Apollo program. All right, there you have it, folks. Uh, and Charlie Rose accurately pointing out, like shareholders might have a problem with this, and of course he. Uh, gave up the CEO slot and just a week or two later wound up going to space. He founded Blue Origin in 2000 and basically nailed everything he said in that clip 20 years from now, maybe things will get easier. And of course, that is exactly what happened. And if you're watching on YouTube, check out this 75. And we have a YouTube channel, by the way, if you listen to us on the podcast, or we, we actually have a video podcast on iTunes, you can get video. Um, although we don't have that synced on Spotify yet, something we're going to work on with the Spotify team. I know with Joe Rogan, you can listen or watch. We need to get in on that uh, as well and sync our podcasts on Spotify. But you can watch the video on iTunes right now. And uh, here's a clip of the four-person team, you know, going into the capsule. Very exciting. A few minutes later, after takeoff, the rocket reads, reaches a top speed of over 2,200 miles per hour. I think that's four times what you would experience on an airplane. Yeah, typically going 500 to 600 miles per hour. And the maximum height. Uh, was over 351,000 feet, more than 65 miles above Earth. This passed the Kármán line, which is 62 miles above Earth, which is one group of individuals, or maybe the majority group of individuals, definition of reaching space. The rocket and capsule separated at about 250,000 feet for the descent. So the rocket landed first. Uh, fun fact, out of the 16 New Shepard rides, the booster rocket has landed safely 15 times. Obviously, this was SpaceX's big innovation. Being able to make the rockets reusable really um, is a, a great way to make space travel more affordable. As Elon always points out, like, imagine you took a 747 or some, you know, airplane across the Atlantic, and then when you got on the other side, you threw it away. It would make the tickets pretty expensive, wouldn't it? Um, now here the capsule lands safely with all the passengers and the party starts Bezos high fiving hugging loved ones popping champagne, uh, all of that, obviously, in comparison to what happened last week, when Virgin Galactic spaceship Two launched Richard Branson's flight reached an altitude of 282,000 feet or 53 miles above the Earth. And so Branson's rocket uh, spaceship Two surpassed NASA's designation of the Earth space boundary of 50 miles. But fell short of the Carmen line, which is 62 miles. Who cares? Um, and uh, Branson said after he landed the flight last week, I've said this many times, it really wasn't a race. We're just delighted that everything went so fantastically well. We wish Jeff the absolute best and the people who are going up with him during this flight. So that's just completely ridiculous. It obviously was a race for the two of them. 
they're both going to be transporting passengers. That is the business model, I think, of both companies, because neither company competes with SpaceX and, you know, their delivery rockets, which are just not even comparable. Uh, Branson uh, tweeted congratulations and was classy after Blue Origin's flight landed today. Well done. Very impressive. Best to the crew from me and the team at Virgin Galactic. Of course, um, Elon sent many people up to the International Space Station, which is really, you know, orbital space is really what it's about. And what's going to be really interesting is uh, SpaceX is going to be putting four passengers in orbit, not for three or four minutes, but for three days in the fall. And so once again, these things are not comparable. One is low orbit, you know, like a fun, simple, you know, a dip into space, still an extraordinary accomplishment. The other one is like, being a true astronaut. And, you know, I'm thinking SpaceX will be sending people for trips around the moon shortly. Um, I think Elon's talked about that publicly a whole bunch during the three day journey, the ship will orbit Earth every 90 minutes along a customized flight path. So uh, I don't know what that ticket's going to cost compared to the tickets on Virgin or Blue Origin. But this is amazing. What a great time to be alive. How inspiring. Who in their right mind could be against this type of human success as a species being able to put civilians in space is an extraordinary moment. Oh, wait, Sharon Sturone, a freelance writer published an article in the Atlantic this morning, titled Space Billionaires, please read the room. Oh, my God, so much. I mean, I, 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 I would click on the bio, but I'm sure there's pronouns in her bio unnecessarily. And she is going to dunk on all the great progress we've made in science and developing the human species. Here's her quote. Could there be a worse time for two uber rich rocket owners to take a quick jaunt toward the dark, especially in the United States, the climate crisis is now actually starting to feel like a crisis, which is so ridiculous and stupid, and virtue signaling that this writer who has contributed nothing <laughs> to science, I'm assuming I, I, you know, she can sit there and be a critic and throw rocks at people actually doing the real work. But she might have missed the fact that the two billionaires uh, have done huge things to help the environment. Number one, Bezos pledged $10 billion to climate efforts. And number two, Elon created Tesla, which has more electric vehicles on the road than anybody, as well as solar power and the power walls. How deranged and cynical are you that you will literally say, read the room when the people you're criticizing who are taking us to space to make the species multi-planetary are also deeply involved in solving climate in fact the largest donation in the history of climate comes from one and the other has had the biggest objective impact when it comes to transportation solar panels and battery packs oh my lord how clueless are you uh she followed this up obviously to their credit the two billionaires aren't totally oblivious in recent years branson has proposed a climate dividend while bezos has pledged 10 billion on climate efforts though we still don't know where all that money will go. Oh my God, these hall monitors, they're just so complainy. But given what humanity has been through the past year and a half, I can't help but wonder what are they thinking? What are they thinking? They're thinking about using science and technology to advance the human species, as opposed to what you're doing, which is complaining in the Atlantic, that science is progressing and that these two individuals are, uh, all three of these individuals are giving billions of dollars to climate change and changing climate change by creating electric vehicles. Oh, my Lord. 
Like, but you know, in fairness, it's a great link baiting, click baiting headline that probably got a lot of page views. If you don't have insurance, you failed one of the first steps of being an entrepreneur. And in brokers technology saves you time and money. Prices are up to 20% lower with better coverage than the incumbents. And you can go from sign up to quote and purchase in just 10 minutes. When you work with a broker instead of business insurance incumbents, you're not dealing with these large slow corporations and sign up only takes days, not weeks. The process is transparent with no opaque pricing. And there are four crucial types of startup insurance that they cover and that you need cyber insurance. This is in case you get hacked D and O insurance. This is for directors and officers. If somebody does something dumb and you get sued, then there's E and O insurance. Some people haven't heard of this. Other people know it all too well. It's called errors and omissions. And it helps you scale your business because any major customer will want you to have errors and omission insurance when you close a deal. And finally, and sadly, EPL, Employment Practices Liability. This covers harassment, wrongful termination, and more. If you are running a business and you hit any kind of scale, somebody is going to do either do something stupid or somebody is going to feel that they were wrongfully terminated. Even if they were terrible and you fired them with cause, they can go find an attorney to sue you. You need to have EPL. And you need to have all four of these types of insurance if you're going to become venture backable and you're going to build a robust business. To instantly buy custom built insurance for startups, go to imbroker.com slash twist. E M B R O K E R.com slash twist. Imbroker.com slash twist. And use my offer code twist to get 10% off. Let's go on to our second story. Robinhood uh, released their S1 slash A this morning. And we'll go out at between 35 and $40 billion in their market cap. And they've reserved 35% of their IPO shares for retail investors are truly innovative. Uh, first time we've ever seen anything like that in the industry full disclosure, I put a small amount of money that's turned into a large amount of money in their seed round. So Robinhood just released uh, this form with the SEC. And it projects the company's valuation to be 31.8 to $35 billion. If you count their restricted stock units, RSUs, um, that puts the valuation at 38 to 40 billion as calculated by Alex Wilhelm at TechCrunch, our friend of the show, um, that this builds on their S1. We broke down the S1 in episode 1240. If you want to go back and read that, uh, this is just an amendment. That's what the A stands for when you do an S1A, uh, gives a little more details to the SEC and everybody else who might consider investing. They're going to sell 52 million shares in their IPO. Uh, which amounts to about 6% of the company. So far, the company's raised $5.8 billion. So this is bringing the total amount raised to $7.8 billion. But what's really unique here is obviously, that Robinhood is giving 35% of their shares to retail investors on the platform. That's me and you and everybody else using the platform. I think they have 18 million active users. So if you start a Robinhood account, you will, I guess, have access to this. And it's a new feature they call IPO access which is going to let retail investors as opposed to friends and families and you know, rich people who have bank accounts with the banks that are doing traditional IPOs. Um, and it's kind of an insider's game, which I found out over time, as I moved up my station in life, and people wanted to curry, you know, some level of uh, influence with me, they would offer me friends and family IPO shares. And all of a sudden, you're like, Oh, I get to buy at the IPO price, maybe I can flip it. The employees you know, can't flip it, the early investors can't flip that stock. So uh, this is great. We want to democratize the stock market, we want to make the world a little bit more fair and equities are the quick way to grow your wealth as anybody who's played in the stock market and had a lot of time in market knows. And so this is just another 
uh, stepping stone in Robin Hood's mission to democratize the financial world. They're using Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. And I guess for those firms, they, you know, uh, don't control those 35% of shares. It is the job, obviously, of an investment bank to come up with a valuation that the market's going to accept and allocate the shares to all the institutional investors. There are direct listings, which this is not where you don't sell any additional shares. Uh, you just put the company public and everybody can trade it. There's obviously SPACs. When retail users buy, they're usually buying the stock after all those allocations uh, have happened. And they're usually the ones who are being flipped. So some rich person who's got a $100 million account with Goldman Sachs or whoever um, gets a $5 million allocation, it becomes worth 12 million, they flip it the same day. And, you know, the the retail investors in the public buy and give that gain and that quick win to the rich folks. So they're basically flipping the script on this. And so IPO access is going to be for other companies as well. I think Duolingo is going to use it. Uh, the language uh, company, uh, language learning company. The Robinhood fact explains it pretty simply. We partner with investment banks to help distribute IPO shares to the public. We are not an underwriter, so we don't work with the issuing company. Instead, investment banks allocate shares to us, and then we give our customers the chance to buy the shares we receive. So Robinhood is uh, pioneering this new feature. Congratulations to them, and they're dogfooding it themselves. Um, here's Robinhood's quote on how IPO access will work. If you've requested IPO shares, we'll let you know how many you can buy on the IPO date. We allocate shares after the market opens, but before the IPO share is trading on the open exchange. If you are watching, here is what the IPO access eligibility screen looks like. Confirm your, uh, confirm your eligibility is what it says at the top. This is what you would see if you open your app and you do it. I'm not a restricted person is the first question. Uh, FINRA restricts certain people and their family members from receiving allocations and IPOs. Second, I'm aware of the flipping policy investors selling or flipping shares within the first 30 days may be restricted from future IPOs. So they can't, I guess, require you to not flip, but they can not let you into the next one. Um, I understand the risk. It's the third point investing in IPO may be riskier than other investments due to lack of data and other factors. Uh, and then you agree and you're in I guess. Um, in related news, the Reddit group Wall Street bets brought up shorting Robinhood's IPO after the GameStop trading chaos that happened in February. So uh, users are calling this the great shortening of Robin Hood and the big Robin Hood short. So things could get crazy. Maybe some people want to <laughs> get some revenge after Robin Hood had to shut down trading. Uh, some Reddit users are now posting to rethink shorting and instead just shun the stock market debut. In other words, uh, just don't participate in it. A user under the name, the only Tate posted in super stonk, just forget Robinhood altogether, let them go down on lawsuits and loss of customer base. This post has more than 7000 upvotes. But the truth is, Robinhood users are as active as ever, uh, according to their S1. And there's 18 million of them. So another Reddit user posted about the choice to not short for a myriad of reasons from fears of being margin called and forced to sell other stocks to speculations that it may be a trap by the hedgies. So my best advice to everybody listening is unless you're an insider, and you really have a lot of information, and you do this professionally, I would stay out of all of these stonks where people are trading them based on anything other than the quality of the revenues of the company, the quality of the product of the company. When you're involved in AMC or Bitcoin or Dogecoin or GameStop, and you're, you know, really working with things that you know, might have disconnected from the reality of their core offering, like what does Bitcoin and what does Dogecoin or 
Ethereum actually do in the world? Or what does AMC or GameStop actually provide to customers and how much those customers spend and how profitable is it? Anything where you have a disconnect between the core product and the valuation and the trading of that uh, asset, you probably want to get out of that and just focus on a company where the assets and the product they provide correlate in some way huh, with the price of the asset. In other words, go buy Netflix or Amazon or Disney or Airbnb or something like that. <laughs> something where you actually use the product and you understand the, the revenue and the quality of it. You know, if you're Hindenburg Research and, and you've got a team of people and you're, you're writing a 50 page <laughs> report on EVs, you know, and, and like we talked about with Lordstown last week, sure, you could maybe, uh, you know, you got that information on fake orders, you've done your research, yeah, maybe you could short, maybe you've got uh, a really credible case to doing that. But be careful, folks. Today, many small business owners are busier than ever. Since they're focused on managing and growing their business, they can't always spend the time they wish they could on recruiting. And you're only as good as your team. I talk about that all the time on this podcast. And that's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to find and hire the best candidates for free. Get started by posting your job for free to reach LinkedIn's network of 700 40 million professionals. Oh my God, there's a lot of people on LinkedIn. Fill out targeted screening questions to get your role in front of the most qualified candidates with the experience, skills, and motivation you need. Then it's easy to filter and prioritize the top candidates you'd like to interview. We love LinkedIn jobs at launch and at Inside. We've hired a second producer, a curriculum designer, and a few more researchers. We are crushing it. We're now 18 people here. I can't believe it. It used to be me and like three people. Every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn. If you've got a job, you're gonna find those job seekers on LinkedIn and they're gonna find that right person for your role right now. Don't waste time. Post your first job for free. That's right, free. LinkedIn is so supportive of this podcast that they're gonna let you post your first job for free to prove to you how amazing their product is. That's how confident they are. LinkedIn.com slash unicorn. That's LinkedIn.com slash unicorn to post your first job listing for free. Of course, terms and conditions do apply because they're giving you that free job posting. All right, on to uh, story number three today. And I really appreciate your feedback on how I'm doing with this rapid news format where I try to keep you informed in the podcast of what's going on and maybe give you a little bit of my opinion or my take on it. Circle led by Jeremy Allaire. Uh, who I've known for 20 years, I wouldn't exactly call us friends. We've I don't think we've ever gone to dinner or anything like that. And I don't know if he's got kids or if he's married. Or, so I wouldn't consider him a friend, but somebody I've known in the industry for a long time, because he did cold fusion and Brian Alvey and I used cold fusion uh, to build blocksmith, I believe in the first version for weblogs Inc. So we know him and uh, he did bright cove after that uh, video company. And now he's doing circle, they did an uh, attestation, an attestation is some quote of report that's not exactly like an audit. Um, but it's more than just a review, some auditor looks and makes sure that what you're saying about your assets is in your bank account. And uh, circle obviously has USDC a stablecoin. If you don't know what a stablecoin is, we can look that up. But basically, it's a cryptocurrency that is pegged to another currency like a fiat, like in this case, the US dollar one for one. And the most popular uh, stablecoin has been Tether. We've been doing an investigation. You can follow the hashtag Tether or Tether investigation on Twitter and see that or go back to our previous episodes. Um, but Circle is going public this year and they did this 
right as the US Treasury is increasing their focus on stablecoins. So the regulatory environment for stablecoins is getting more intense, Circle is going public, and Tether is under massive scrutiny. So uh, yesterday, Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen gathered with Jerome Powell and other high ranking officials to discuss stablecoins. So this is somehow in the zeitgeist in a major way, which I think means there could be something funky going on with Tether, like people are saying, and that there might be government action coming. And here we go, the government's meeting. And according to the Treasury officials press release, they discussed, and I'm going to quote here, the rapid growth of stablecoins, potential uses of stablecoins as a means of payment. Okay, so far, so good. And potential risk to end users. Okay, uh oh, the financial system and national security. Our government considers stablecoins as a potential risk to users, citizens of the United States, the financial system itself, and wait for it, the national security of the United States of America. People do not put out a press release like this, lest that be accurate, and they have some specific agenda coming. So if they're going to say this is a national security risk, a financial risk and a risk for you, the consumers, that means actions coming in my mind. That's how I read it. They're preparing the market through the press that something big is coming. So uh, we're going to get some regulation, I'm sure. Uh, here's the quote. The President's Working Group on Financial Markets expects to issue recommendations in the coming month. Recommendations are essentially a chance for the public and other participants to give comments on what will become law. Some quick background on Circle. Um, they issue this USDC, uh, which is the second largest stablecoin in crypto with 26.5 billion tokens in circulations. Tether is number one with 62 billion in circulation via CoinGecko, uh, a website that tracks these things. According to Circle, the total USDC in circulation has grown more than 2600% since the beginning of 2021. Obviously, Tether is uh, either flat or declining in terms of its usage. It's very hard to know. Uh, but I think flat is what most people are saying on Twitter. So I'll go with that. Here's the interesting thing. Circle is increasing the amount of transparency in what they're doing at the same time that Tether is you know, attacking people questioning them. So that's a very interesting trend. Um, and Circle's going to go public via SPAC at a $4.5 billion valuation that was just announced two weeks ago on July 8th, they're going to merge with Concord Acquisition Corporation, that's the name of the SPAC. And the CEO and co founder Jeremy Allaire went on CNBC Squawk Box to announce the SPAC on July 8th. He's also agreed to come on this program. And we've traded back and forth. And we're just scheduling it now. Um, here's a 45 second clip where he explains his reasoning for going public. Very interesting reasoning too. And we've seen the adoption of USD coin, which is the, the digital, you know, the digital currency, the dollar digital currency that we principally operate skyrocket. It's grown 55 X over the last 12 months. The amount of USDC in circulation has grown to almost 26 billion and it's driving incredible growth as a company. And as we look at what we're building, building a, a platform and a set of services for major corporations, financial institutions, and others to build on, we just see an incredible opportunity to grow, uh, to grow rapidly and, and grow around the world. And we think that you know, this uh, set of transactions and becoming a public company, I think really sets us up to be you know, a trusted platform in this, uh, in this digital currency industry. All right, so there you have it. Jeremy Allaire, very clear. And the money quote, of course, being becoming a public company really sets us up to be a trusted platform in this digital currency industry, like Coinbase. The fact that Coinbase and Circle will both be public entities means 
the public can trust those companies more. If Madoff or Theranos had been public companies, they would not have been able to be so opaque. Uh, they wouldn't have been able to be opaque at all. They would have had to do a lot of disclosures and had professional auditors, professional accountants, etc. And Tether has sketchy books, lawsuits, commercial paper, the Bitfinex connections, and their executive team is MIA, whereas the CEO, despite all that, uh, Tether did say they are going to go on CNBC this Wednesday. We'll see if they cancel and we'll see um, how good a job Deirdre does questioning them. I wish they had Jim Cramer come on because and maybe uh, help Deirdre with the questioning because the, uh, Jim Cramer has been on top of this as well and has, I think, some inside information in the commercial paper space. So um, I think Circle can become the stablest of all the stable coins. I don't have a horse in the race. I don't own any of these stable coins. I don't own shares in any of these companies. And uh, my crypto exposure is limited to uh, some Bitcoin uh, that we own. So uh, just this morning, Circle re released this attestation done by Grant Thornton, which is I I've seen them uh, um, all over the industry. Uh, they've been around since 1986. They have uh, had over $1 billion in revenue last year. This is a legitimate firm here in the United States. The attestation was dated on May 28th, and it took the firm over 50 days to complete it. Uh, which seems actually an appropriate amount of days. Um, I shouldn't say over 50. It took them 50 days to do it. Uh, at the time, there were 22 billion in USDC in circulation today. There's slightly more, 26.5. And here's some excerpts. Um, I'll quote, our examination was conducted in accordance with the attestation standards established by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. The total fair value of the US dollar denominated assets held in segregated accounts are at least equal to the USDC in circulation at the report date. So it's at least equal, <laughs> I guess they're leaving room that it could have increased in value because they have some assets that could throw off interest, I'm sure. And the segregated accounts means you're not blending. And this was something Tether was, um, I think, accused of. And I think the US Attorney General actually um, settled with them over this was that they were mixing accounts, right? Um, their operating account with the account holding these assets. So you could have Tether and Bitfinex somehow sharing accounts. And that is a big no, no. That's actually, I believe what took down full tilt poker, which was they had the players accounts, their money players had and their operating budget, you know, what they were using to run the business, they had commingled those accounts. That's a big no, no, that would be like Charles Schwab, taking your assets and what you own for your retirement and putting in the same bank account, they play the Charles Schwab uh, employees out of and, and that co-mingling is really really uh against the rules at least here in the united states for those people who you know operate in the united states which is why i think a lot of these regulations exist because we've been through many frauds in the united states so we have a nice regulatory environment and that's why some people like crypto and offshore accounts is because you get rid of all that regulation if you get rid of that regulation things move faster and uh, also things can go off the rails quicker so let's look at the breakdown here 61% cash and cash equivalents. So cash includes deposits at banks and government uh, obligation money market funds cash equivalents are defined as securities with an original maturity date less than or equal to 90 days in accordance with general accepted accounting principles. So that is uh, a much different number than tethers 13% Yankee CDs. I've never heard of these. Uh, they're defined as USD denominated certificates of deposit issued in the US by branches of foreign banking organizations. 12% US treasuries, we all know what that is 9% commercial paper, commercial paper are loans to other corporations, these are considered risky or could be very risky. And they're very opaque, 
who I think anybody can just print these up. And so that was one of the big issues that the Financial Times and others pointed out with tethers 5% corporate bonds that makes sense 0.2% municipal bonds totally makes sense. Those are pretty solid assets. Uh, you compare that to tether they had only 2% of their total assets in cash compared to 61% for circle if I'm reading this correct. Tether also combined commercial paper into cash and cash equivalents. While circle separated the two in different categories. I think circle obviously did that seeing all the FUD fear, uncertainty and doubt associated with that move by tether and we'll find out over time, if that was fear, uncertainty and doubt or, you know, an accurate uh, assessment of the risk associated with tether. Tether also had over 40% of its assets in commercial paper uh, versus 9% for USDC. My question in all of this is, who gets the float on the commercial paper and the Yankee CDs? So is the business of having a stable coin that you have, let's say you had 26 billion or 60 billion, and you make 1% on that or 2% on that because some of these assets throw off interest, the people who have the stable coins, they don't get that. Tether and you and Circle get those, which means if you have 60 billion and you're making 1% or 2% a year, do you get 600 million or 1.2 billion that you get to make? In other words, the float, that, that's a pretty great business. Um, is that how they make money? Uh, is that is that the business here? And then if that was the business that would incent people to go after more and more risky categories of capital allocation, because they get 100% of the returns over the dollar peg. That could be a reason why people would be more interested in commercial paper, because it throws more money off and companies are not going to go for the safest return, they're going to go for the biggest return or humans tend to go for the biggest return, not the safest return, at least in the financial space, at least in my experience. So this is where I think regulation will come in is maybe they'll just say, listen, if you want to have a stable coin in the United States, you want to operate here, it has to be 75% cash cash equivalents, or something like that. Uh, or you're going to be graded as a tier one, tier two, tier three, and we're going to tax you or create some regulatory framework here. I, my my bet is that Tether is their mix of and their auditing is not going to be enough to operate in the United States for much longer and or other jurisdictions. And I think USDC is going to overtake Tether um, very quickly. I think that'll happen in under a year or two. Because, you know, what's going to happen is everybody who wants, who believes in crypto, who wants crypto to be a real trusted uh, part of the financial system, I think any good actors or anybody who's long crypto is going to want to get rid of the tethers and get rid of the Bitfinex and, and these other, you know, Binance's people who are operating in the in the shadows in like a dark way, people are going to want those out of the system. And they're going to want to have more Coinbase's and circles and public companies and regulations, so that this whole space can be uh, a little more stable. And in fact, getting out of China is a big part of that. If you get if, if you don't have the service in China, as I said, when China banned all the Bitcoin mining, and we saw the whole scale of the Bitcoin network constrict, that's actually I thought short term pain for a lot of long term gain. And nobody wants to be involved in this currency if they think China has the ability to manipulate it um, at scale. How much time and money do you spend integrating a bunch of different software products together? Let me guess way too much. Well, Odoo is here to help. Odoo is a suite of business apps that runs your entire company on one platform. They'll streamline your workflow to bring all that information together. Plus, Odoo's integrations eliminate repetitive tasks and data entry. If you only need two or three apps to optimize your workflow, well, that's all you're going to pay for. 
Odoo won't stick you with the bill for apps you don't use. And Odoo has an app for every business need. They offer 30 main apps that are updated regularly and over 16,000 apps from their active open source community. You can keep your books tight with their financial software. You can add their sales and CRM apps to help provide a clear and organized view of how you're doing as a team. And here's your simple call to action. Your first app is free forever. And right now, Odoo is offering a $1,000 credit on your first implementation pack. That's not a joke. $1,000 off. Go to odoo.com slash twist to check it out. Odoo.com slash twist. The crypto crackdown in the Far East has continued. On Monday, Malaysian authorities seized and destroyed over a thousand Bitcoin mining rigs in a very theatrical way. They alleged that the miners had stole $2 million worth of electricity from power lines. We know that this is a trend with people stealing power from different places uh, and then trying to do the arbitrage with mining for Bitcoin. And they did it with a bulldozer. <laughs> Here's the video. Uh, if you're watching, uh, gotta be heartbreaking if you were the person who set up all those rigs and paid for them to watch a literal bulldozer drive over them and crush them this is a serious message they're sending to the crypto community um with a visual right obviously if you want to persuade people uh, to take something seriously you use a visual and here we go um here's a visualization of what will happen to your thousand rigs which must cost a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars each with all the memory and gpus in them but we're talking about millions of dollars worth of machines just being crushed here. That would to me was a bit of a bummer. I would have rather seen the the government confiscate those and set them up on the government network and let the government profit from those and pay back the electricity or have them auction them off. So that would have been that would have been a much better use. But clearly, they wanted to send a, a message uh, to people who are stealing. Okay, and remember back in June, uh, Chinese authorities arrested over 1100 people for allegedly using crypto to launder money, according to the Wall Street Journal. If you just compare that to other mass arrests, like we had, you know, 13,000 people arrested over three days, according to the Wikipedia, uh, for the May Day protest in 1971. But we really have not had that many people arrested in a dragnet. Sometimes you'll get uh, some people arrested like uh, in a a mafia rico case of 100 but china has made it clear bitcoin cryptocurrency no longer welcome it's pretty obvious they're going to have their own cryptocurrency they're going to control it and it's going to be amazing for an authoritarian government to control every citizen's money and how they spend it and if you are uh convicted of a crime you could literally or you're you know it could be an abuse by an authoritarian government you could just explode somebody's money so you said something about the government they didn't like, let's say you're Jack Ma, they could literally just press a button and Jack Ma's money either goes away or is literally taken from him as without a court case with without even having to go and seize it from a bank. Just boom, press the money digital one, we now have your money. Or if they want to tax people, imagine in an authoritarian government, they can just press a button and say, we're taking 10% of everybody's money. It's a one time tax for the <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, to help the government of China. And this is, I think, what some of the crypto people have right about money, which is, why should the government be able to do this? Why should they be able to just take our money at any time or tax us? And it goes back to taxation without representation or other sort of moments in history. And, and I think that was like kind of the positive, non toxic, interesting take. But as I told you all, you are not going to fight the Chinese government you're not going to fight the North Korean government, the Iranian government, any authoritarian government 
And all these Bitcoin maximalists kept telling me I was wrong, that you couldn't stop Bitcoin, it was unstoppable, cryptocurrency is unstoppable, China can't stop it. Uh, you know, for the for the Bitcoin ultras, I hate to say I told you so, but here is a 60 second clip from episode 1219. In December of 2019, I did the following tweet, BTC ultras have lost their minds if they think the Chinese government can't control track and ultimately ban Bitcoin usage at any time. They put you in jail for running a VPN in China, uh, a virtual private network, you know, when you uh, obscurify your IP address. Think what they would do if you ran an underground Bitcoin network. I can tell you what they would do. They'd put you in re-education camp, you'd be tortured, murdered, and then you would cut, or if you were lucky enough to survive, you would come out and give a public statement about how horrible you were to the country and how much you appreciate uh, China. That's what would happen to you. So uh, in 2019, a man was in fact sentenced to five years in jail for running a VPN. So again, Bitcoin maximalist. My Twitter handle is at Jason, please come at me and explain to me why they would put somebody in jail for five years for a VPN, which just allows you to trade information privately, when they wouldn't do that for somebody who has a Bitcoin uh, position or is challenging the sovereignty of the one? Are you crazy? So I mean, I, I hate to say I told you so because it's so obvious. You would have to be a child and naive and just not understand communism and authoritarian regimes to understand that they can arrest people and do whatever they want. They can torture people, put, you know, 3 million Uyghurs in a re-education camp and force them to pick cotton in a field. Like, are you so dumb and delusional about this technology that you think that an authoritarian government all of a sudden is going to just let it run amok? Y you might be able to do that in the United States for a period of time. but you know, this is a country that ran over their own citizens with tanks in Tiananmen Square. Um, so if you fast forward to 2021, just last week, uh, a lot of popular crypto exchanges, including Binance, uh, were no longer appearing on Baidu, Chinese Google, uh, or Weibo, Chinese Twitter equivalent. So China can censor whatever they want on their internet, you cannot search for Tiananmen Square, you cannot search for Tank Man. And as of April 2020, China was responsible for 65% of the world's Bitcoin mining nine times more than the US in second place, according to the University of Cambridge. And uh, that chart's going to look really different very soon as China and other countries, you know, have kicked out the crypto miners, and they're going to just keep tightening the noose and other countries will do that as well. So the approach China's taking is going to be, you know, top down, turn it off. In the United States, it'll be a different approach. It'll be regulation. It'll be taxation. Uh, and it will be selective uh, enforcement, like we saw with Tether and the New York Attorney General's office. So in the United States, we kind of have a process when we want something to be regulated. It includes some enforcement. It, it doesn't just happen like imminent domain. In China, if they want to build a highway and your house is in the middle of the road, your house is getting moved, you're moving the end, the road's getting built. In the United States, You've seen the Pixar movie Up, one of the great Pixar uh, movies. It's not my favorite, Ratatouille is. But putting that aside, uh, you know, you, there's a longstanding tradition of people holding out and fighting the system. So we will see that in the United States. People will have a grand debate in our democracy over crypto and how it should be regulated. Ultimately, this is great for crypto. And so for all of my laser-eyed friends with their ha have fun being poor, the memes and their toxicity, let's take a pause here. I'm giving you a win. Regulation, tether getting deprecated, China being removed from the picture, and Coinbase and Circle going both being public entities. 
and increased regulation and taxation will ultimately be good for crypto. A regulatory environment will be better for crypto. It won't be the Wild West. You might not see as many swings up or down. Things might become more stable. And you'll have government offerings and you'll have private sector offerings. And it will just not be the Wild West. And then 100% of people will feel comfortable playing in this field. And that's kind of what happened with the internet. We watched the internet be something that people were very scared of. It's really dangerous. Stay on AOL, stay on Prodigy, CompuServe protect your kids, protect your family, protect your credit cards, don't use the internet was literally I watched it over three, four, five years switch from the internet can never be a safe commercial place. You never want to put your credit card into it from people are putting their entire lives in the cloud over the internet, the end. Uh, and that's what's going to happen with cryptocurrency. And that's that's something going to be good for everybody. All right, there is a group in Israel called NSO group, they have spyware that is used uh, to basically compromise people's phones and gives you the ability to download all the photos, get all the messages and turn on the microphone. It turns out that this is being abused. There you go. This Israeli tech firm NSO group technologies uh, created spyware called Pegasus that enables the remote surveillance of smartphones. Um, it was officially marketed for surveillance of serious criminals and terrorists. You're not going to believe it. But uh, people used it to spy on journalists and other individuals. Really, you made spying technology and it was abused. Shocking. There is something called the Pegasus Project, which is 17 media organizations have put this together. And over several months, more than 80 journalists investigated uh, all the spying abuses. The Pegasus technology was found on more than half of the 50,000 phones inspected by the consortium. This is nothing new. We've seen it with WhatsApp and other things. But the scale of this is pretty crazy. The NSO group says it only sells spyware to vetted government bodies. Um, that uh, really doesn't fly because those government bodies can obviously abuse it. And uh, yeah, I feel really terrible for all these uh, journalists who have had this compromised. And this is a rogue organization. And I think the fact that they're able to do this to your phone is just incredible. And iPhones, I, I really am interested to see what Apple's counter to this is Apple really needs to get this under control because the whole idea of using an iPhone was that you were going to protect us. So Tim Cook, you're on the clock. All right, zoom announced they're going to acquire 5.9 for 14.7 billion. It's zoom's largest acquisition to date. Zoom is sitting at about $105 billion. And this is an all stock acquisition it represents about 15% of the company. So this is a WhatsApp like bet. Remember when Facebook uh, spent all that money on WhatsApp? Or it might be similar to Salesforce buying Slack. It's a big bet. Uh, Zoom's first acquisition over a billion dollars. If you don't know Five9, um, it's uh, it helps companies run contact centers remotely and provides tools that automate tasks, distribute work, and report on effectiveness. Zoom founder Eric Wan noted uh, they made this investment because and I'm going to paraphrase here. Five9 provides a really simple platform. If you're a customer support agent, you can work from home and you can do all that remote. Obviously, Zoom helps people work remote. So this is you know, kind of adjacent to them, this should accelerate zoom's phone system, they have a, cl a cloud phone system. Uh, and our the CEO Rowan Trollope actually was on this week in startups episode 917 in April 19. Uh, so congratulations to Rowan friend of mine. Um, and uh, we'd love to have Rowan back on the pod. I think he's going to come on after uh, all this. And hopefully, uh, we'll have Eric on at some point. Okay, Keith Raboy's open dot store just went live as we were taping this show. Uh, pretty 
brilliant idea. I asked Keith if I could invest and the round was closed. Hopefully he can sneak me into a future round. I think it's a brilliant idea. But basically, this is being set up open.store to acquire a bunch of e commerce companies. There has been an, a massive boom in people starting Shopify stores or becoming third party sellers on Amazon. So the brilliant idea that Keith has here is what if you bought all of these and put them together under one roof? And uh, entrepreneurs just fill out a form, uh, they link their Shopify accounts and open store will give them an offer for their business within one business day. So the key there is that they link their Shopify accounts so they can see the quality of the revenue make an offer. And the transaction according to open store will close in days not months without a broker. Uh, so this is like an m a roll up play IAC did something like this, you know, buying all of the different assets they have uh, Barry Diller. Uh, we had uh, on our program, actually, Josh uh, Silberstein, he was on episode 1094 back in August of 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. And he is pursuing something similar. Uh, they were the fastest unicorn ever created from founding to unicorn, according to most people's take on it. And um, they just bought a bunch of businesses that were third party sellers. And then you let them operate independently, but you maybe get some uh, scale because you take the marketing practices or you have cross marketing or common accounting common growth techniques, maybe you have some databases of users. So you get some lift there. If you have one, if you have two brands, uh, you know, maybe you can't create a database of, you know, more than a million people. But if you have 200 brands, maybe you can get a database of 100 million customers, and then understand them cross sell and advertise to them. So with scale comes all of those economies of scale. So congratulations to them. All right. And just just while we wrap up here, and before we get to my interview, this came across my screen, Jeff Bezos thanking Amazon employees for making his dream come true. I also I want to thank uh, every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer, because you guys paid for all of this. <laughs> so seriously, for every Amazon customer out there and every Amazon employee, thank you from the bottom of my heart very much. Uh, it's very appreciated. All right, that's kind of interesting. I guess that could be maybe a read the room moment. Now that I think about it, he's thanking employees and customers for making his dream possible. Ah, uh, you guys, you guys paid for all this. It is true. Um, I mean, in a way, Bezos paid for it because he made the money, he made the company. But sure, uh, the employees and the customers gave him the ability to make that money. And uh, you guys paid for all this. <laughs> That's pretty hilarious. All right. Uh, now my interview with Garrett Langley of Flock Safety, another startup I missed investing in. Crime is a big topic in the world today. Uh, we've seen San Francisco, New York and other places. Uh, Los Angeles take a different approach to maybe law and order, allowing property crimes. Uh, and we have this crazy proposition that we approved here in California, where crimes under $950 are allowed. And because of this, criminal gangs are now, you know, knocking off department stores and Walgreens, and they're closing targets and closing the hours of them. And people are generally feeling not safe. And as a 50 year old uh, man who's lived in New York, Los Angeles, and the Bay Area, those three cities, I've watched different versions of crime escalate and go down, and all kinds of different uh, criminal policing theories. It's pretty clear to anybody who's out there that cameras can help in deterring crime, and data can help in avoiding crime in the future. 
prosecuting crimes that have occurred, deterring crimes, and studying them. That's why companies like Ring and, and others have done so well. So I was thinking uh, about uh, license plates. And the reason I was thinking about this a couple of years ago is I thought, wow, it'd be incredible if a startup could take my Nest Cam, my outdoor Nest Cam, and record the license plates of cars that drove by. And we had invested in a company called Butterfly that um, essentially shut down or got sold. Um, and I was thinking, wow, I wonder, because they started doing computer vision on those cameras. And now Nest has the same feature where you can, in fact, um, do facial recognition. And when you recognize a face, you could say, okay, I'm going to send an alert or you recognize a dog. Hey, your dog just went through the front door. He's out in the front yard or the backyard, whatever it is. So I started thinking about license plates and I found an open source project on GitHub where people had actually made this software. And I was like, wow, the internet's amazing. Developers are amazing. Then I find an API and then I found today's company, which is called Flock Safety. Now I, I missed investing in this company, but they have built an amazing product. And that product is basically $2,500 a year. You can plant it outside of your door and uh, let's say you live on a road and you live on, you know, uh, Mulberry Lane, you can put it on your property on Mulberry Lane, every car that drives by, you get their license plate puts it in a database, and then you can see all the data in some sort of enterprise solution. So a community can pay for these, or individuals can pay for it. And the CEO of that company is Garrett Langley. And the name of that company is flock safety, which you can see at flocksafety.com. They were founded in 2017. And like I said, I missed uh investing in the company but they've raised uh, over 230 million uh welcome to the show garrett thanks for having me excited to be here okay you heard my introduction um what did i get right about your company and maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, why you started the company i think you hit the nail on the head on the macro problem which is like crime is here and it's been here for a long time and it impacts everyone whether you live in a coastal town like LA or New York, or you live in Wichita or Indianapolis, everyone is equally impacted by crime. And it's really unfortunate. And so that you hit the nail on the head. I think product, you got like 95% right. Okay. Uh, you, well, let's you got, get into you, that. Tell us what is the yeah. product today. Um, I'm basing what I know about the product from your website and the fact that I've been talking to your sales team and I see yeah. you on the last email. <laughs> <laughs> Which is awesome. Uh, yeah. I was like, oh gosh, we're secret shopping. Um, do a yeah. good job team. But yeah, yeah, no. So, you know, at a high level, our mission as a company is to eliminate crime. Uh, I'm an engineer. I took a look at this problem from an engineering perspective of why does crime exist? It exists because it's easy to get away with, right? Only one in 10 nonviolent crimes actually leads in an arrest. And that's what's reported. That doesn't take out all of the crime that might have happened to you that you never even called 911 because maybe you weren't going to file an insurance claim. And so, well, and certainly we, in San Francisco, people have given up. They've been very explicit that they're no longer even calling it in, which is sad, in my opinion. Because if you look at the primary research, and this is not, you know, Garrett's opinion or Fox's opinion, this is, you know, federally funded research on the topic. The only way to reduce crime is to solve more of it. Mm. If you increase the opportunity cost of being a criminal, to a certain point where you know you're going to get arrested, you go get a real job. Like these people could go get real jobs, but they choose to be a criminal because they know they can get away with it. So our point of view out of the gate was, let's go build really cool technology that actually drives the likelihood of an arrest occurring. And in doing that, we believe long-term we'll see crime reductions. And that's what, that's what we're seeing today. So that was four years ago when we started the company. You fast forward to today, you know, we typically serve 
two types of customers, municipalities, and then the constituents inside of those municipalities. And a pretty cool stat for you. I was uh, shocked when I heard this. One out of every 100 arrests that'll happen this year will be due to a flock camera. One out of every 100 arrests in the United States will happen because of flock camera. How many just ballpark cameras are out there? How many communities are covered? If we were to think about a percentage of the United States um, or percentage of major cities, give us an idea of, of, of what your footprint is today, uh, four years into your company. Yeah, so we're at almost about a 10% coverage of cities in the country. Um, that's where the actual city is a customer. You know, that ranges from smaller towns like a, you know, Danville or San Marino or, you know, La Habra to bigger cities like a Memphis, Tennessee or Indianapolis or Fort Worth. Um, so every, and everyone in between. Um, wow. Uh, so 10% and you have put a price point on these that is extremely low. I was looking into these uh, prior to you existing, and they were all custom solutions that would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to implement in a neighborhood. If a neighborhood, you know, was going to spend, uh, you know, a half million dollars on security guards, and camera systems, you could essentially do a better job with your big data, license plate recognition than those guards could uh, for 10% of the price? Uh, how do you pitch it when you're talking to those local communities? Yeah, I mean, so that that was me. I, I was you, Jason, just a few years ago, and my neighborhood was a massive victim of crime. An organized gang came in, broke into every single car. It was a pretty terrible weekend. And when the police department showed up, they said, look, we don't have any evidence. You need a license plate reader. So we went to go procure them. Quarter of a million dollars later, I was like, this doesn't compute. I have this $300, $400 device, an iPhone in my pocket. It's got an incredible camera. It's got an LTE modem. It's got a CPU that can do computer vision. Why does this camera cost $40,000? And so a buddy of mine and I put our heads together and said, great, well, I'm an electrical engineer. Let's go grab some of these old phones off of you know the internet, tear them apart, put them in a waterproof box, put a solar panel on top, and like lo and behold, with some good software and some good computer vision, you've built a license plate reader at a couple hundred dollar bomb, and that really hasn't fundamentally changed. Like if you look at the product today, it's gotten a lot better. We're much smarter engineers than than me working on it now, but it is still really that's the a year or two behind the best in class smartphone, and we can take off that supply chain put it in our own custom package with a managed service behind it. And to your point, whether you live in a $100,000 home or a $10 million home, your community can afford this. And that's, I think, I know you're a, a fan of Uber. I think that's something similar, which is like, they made black service type cars affordable for anybody. Everybody. Right? I mean, literally and I think that's the, the goal of technology. And the I think that's our same everybody's pitch. Pr everybody's private driver was the original tagline. Um, so... You build this, people start going crazy for it. For people who don't know, bomb is build of materials. So essentially, you've taken a smartphone, put it in a box, got a solar panel. Obviously, it's not a smartphone, but it's literally mm -hmm. the built off the components that are in there. So you literally can install this in 10 minutes at any home anywhere that has, uh, I'm assuming, a 4 or 5G connection. And yeah. uh, it's 200 bucks a month. Now, when I open up the interface, what do I see? And then I guess, how specific can I get in tracking? So yeah. tell us what we see in the, in the display when you open up this web-based tool. Because I've seen some screenshots yeah. of it on your website, but I couldn't find an actual demo of it on YouTube or anywhere. Yeah. So there's really two primary use cases. There's a proactive 
kind of solution and then a reactive solution. So proactive is strictly for law enforcement. So the cameras are integrated into the FBI's national database of wanted vehicles. So that's about a quarter million cars that are stolen, outstanding warrants, amber alerts, silver alerts. Like if you're objectively a car that needs to be pulled over, we know. And so if you, Jason, put a camera in your front yard and a car drives by and it is on that list, within a few seconds, we've notified the nearest patrol vehicle. That to me is like, that's why I have one in my front Wow. Yard. I have a, now, two a kids second. in my house. I want to make sure that if a stolen car drives by, like let they're not up to sure any I, good. Yeah. Let me, let me make sure I understand this. Okay. So a stolen car goes by, my camera picks it up. Do I, as the homeowner who paid for this 2,500, get the alert as well? Or do you just do a, 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 you know, hey, this camera that we have on the network, and then you send it to, you know, the local authorities and you have their email address, or you do a phone, you mechanical turk it. How do you actually get that yeah. information to the local com- you know, community? So for the, the 13 plus hundred cities where we contract with them, it goes directly into p- the patrol vehicle. So our software also runs in all the patrol vehicles. So wow. if you lived in, you know, San Ramon, um, and you steal a car and you drive by one of the hundreds of cameras we have in San Ramon, whether it's owned by an individual, a neighborhood, a small business owner, wow. or the police department. What does it show they're them? All it just shows them together. that license plate or does it actually give them a video clip with a full, GIF or something? Full video, the license wow. plate zoomed in. It's very important. You, know, you talk about some of the things that we take seriously. Like one is the objectivity and actionability of the product. And so we want to make sure that that's human verified because we think our ML is great, but it's not perfect. And so we pull up a nice zoomed in image and say, hey, we believe this is the state. This is the OCR. This is the exact license plate. It matches what the FBI says. And then they rerun that in their own. Because we don't, we, we see warrant, right? Hey, there's an outstanding warrant. We don't know Got if that's it. a violent warrant or nonviolent. And so they'll pull it up. And then what's pretty incredible is like, most police officers work really hard. And so when you give them a powerful tool like this, they're on it. They get pretty excited. They, they're all over it. Um, so that's OCR like the number one use case. Optical character recognition. And so what you're pointing out there, I think, if I can interpret for you, hey, maybe, you know, if you think this is a California plate, but it's got mud on it, or it's a one or an L and, you know, it's a dirty plate, or you could have, uh, I would think fake plates as well, or there could be bad data in the system. There's so many things that can go wrong. And the worst case scenario for you would be to misidentify, you know, mom coming home with her kids from, you know, uh, you know, pizza. And it's a stolen vehicle and cops then, you know, surround the vehicle and, and God forbid something bad were to happen. So you have to be very careful and say, we suspect this is a car. You should go do your diligence. And that's what the, the ML team we have is like world caliber. And, and unlike, you know, a traditional use case where it's like, hey, if you're 85% right, it's kind of fine. It's like we recognize the responsibility we've been given, which is when we say this is what it is, it's going to lead to an arrest. You know, it's a 99.9% confidence interval. You know, it's got to be the right stuff. Do you stuff. take pictures of the faces in the car? No. So we are big believers. It, it's about creating objectivity. And like, we don't care who's in the car. We just know the car is stolen. Wait we just know second. the car is an outstanding warrant. You don't care, but the police certainly would. If they knew that the person who was in there and they saw the picture and they could match that picture to the owner of the car and they saw there were three other passengers... And maybe they saw a firearm in the car or an open canister of beer or who knows what else. That would be very important for them to see. Why not give them that data? I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, I think it gets down to, 
you know, we have what feels like a moral responsibility to draw lines where mm-hmm. the government hasn't progressed as fast as the technology has in terms of right. like, what do we want to automate? What do we want to leave to human perceptive? And so for right. us, it's like, our job is to provide the most actionable evidence. We give that to law enforcement and then they got to go do the human part. The human part is, hey, go, go pull that person over, go talk to them, mm-hmm. go figure out, are they the person you're looking for? Right? Do they you have drugs? Do they have a for, weapon? You you could tell them you think there's two people in the vehicle, three people in the vehicle. You're so that you could actually. There's definitely some inference. There's some inference you could do. So it's kind of like the metadata on a phone call. Somebody could get a subpoena and get the metadata, and I guess this then takes us to the privacy portion of this discussion, which is, okay, if I'm a home user and I put this out there, do mm-hmm. I get access to all the license plates that go by or not? You do. So the second use case we were talking about is okay. It's not a stolen car that drove by. It's just any car. So we retain that data on your behalf for 30 days. And as the payer of said product, you can go in and say, hey, show me every black SUV manufactured by Ford with a roof rack. Mm. And we would show you over the last 30 days, every car wow. that matches that description. So we okay. get down to what we call the vehicle fingerprint. But only it's about 30 24 days. Different countries. So you've decided right. that it would be too much because this is where people are going to start feeling this is creepy. And you must get this question all the time. So I'll just ask it on behalf of people who have privacy concerns. Okay, what keeps me as the nosy neighbor from then knowing my neighbor's whereabouts every time they leave their house, every time they come home, oh, my neighbor comes home at two or three in the morning every night with three or four different people in the car, whatever it is. What would your answer to that valid concern be? There's a, there's a few things. The first is around data retention. Like to your point, we think 30 days is a good compromise. If okay. there's superseding local regis- legislation, we follow that. So some mm-hmm. states have seven days, some states have much longer, and we still stick to 30. The second is like the fact of the matter is like your license plate is actually not your property. It's the property of the state in which the car is registered. Mm-hmm. So it's not personal property we're covering. And then more on a subjective note, you know, I think the tracking that happens, and thanks to Apple, it's a bit harder now. The tracking that happens on your phone is a whole lot more invasive than, oh, it, l- it looks like Jason might have left the neighborhood yeah. at this time. Uh, additionally, there's no expectation of privacy on a public road. Correct. Correct. Um, yet, the thing that does become, uh, th- that would be the way I would answer it, is, hey, there's no expectation on a public road. And we know that this person has this data. So if they were to use it in some nefarious kind of way, we would be able to trace it back to the person who did it. So there's a little more ownership of it. And is it not true that I can put a drop cam or rather a Nest cam or any commodity cam and use one of the API services? I found there's another company that provides a similar service to what you do, but you just hit their API with video and they tell you the license playback. So I could do this without the controls you have in place. And certainly people today, the nosy neighbors are pointing cameras onto other people's property, into the roads, and already tracking their neighbors. Or, or you could do what we did when we were building the product and just pay an intern, you know, 15 bucks an hour to go sit on the road and, and track cars. Wow. Oh, is that really what you, know, you like, did in the first We version? had to figure out, we had to make sure the camera was working, right? You got to make yeah. sure we're reading every page perfectly. And it's like, how do you do that? Well, if we can be better than the human eye, or at least as good as the human eye, mm. we're doing pretty good. Uh, pretty amazing. Um, have they banned your approach of doing bottom up, I think is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, because you can get a concerned citizen who $2,500 if you've been robbed is, you know, uh, not a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> or if you live in a whatever multi million dollar home, you know, you're already putting in a $10,000 or $5,000 camera system. So 
2500 for this doesn't seem too expensive. And then that gives you a bottom up SaaS like approach. Once you have it, everybody else community goes, Oh, look, this is on this road. I want it on my road. I want to mm -hmm. protect it. Um, so is that a deliberate bottom up SaaS kind of sales approach? Yeah, I mean, I would say for sake of clarity, we have probably less than 10 individuals who actually pay for the product. Oh, the, really? Oh, okay. So, so 50% yeah, so of our customers are homeowners associations and apartment complexes, their communities. That's kind of the, the genesis of the name of the company is like, as an individual, Jason, if your neighbor gets broken into, you're going to still feel pretty violated, not mm -hmm. as violated if it's your home, but you're still going to be frightened. Sure. And yeah. so I felt that way and said, well, how do we do this? We got to move the, the line of defense farther out to the, mm -hmm. to the egress of the community. Let's protect ourselves. And then so about 50% of our revenue comes from, from those types of groups and the other 50% comes from the municipalities themselves. Got it. And tell me a little bit about the massive drop in crime you saw, I have a, mm -hmm. um, a slide here 215 beat stats after March through August. Yeah, um, and it shows a five year average of robbery of 29 2018 23 2019 11. So the 18 to 19 change in robbery went down 52%. What market is this in? And what does 215 beat stats mean? Yeah, so that's a in a suburb here of Atlanta. A place called Cobb County, and uh, most cities break up their kind of areas into zones or beats, and that's Got where it. a certain "quote unquote" beat cop, where the term comes from. So that's a certain beat. Um, we did one of our kind of early, early pilots with them. We said, "Hey, look, let's just. I want to make sure this thing actually achieves the mission. I, I know sure. we're making arrests. I, I can I track that every day, every hour. I can tell you how many arrests we've made, but I want to know are we actually leading to a reduction." And so we tried our best to do as an objective of a study and said, hey, we're not going to put cameras in this beat. We're going to put cameras in this beat and we're going to look at year over year. And it was like, holy smokes, it worked. Hmm. Like the, the quality of life for this community has fundamentally changed. Like Non-residential burglary, non burglary is down 63%. Entering yep. an auto down 64%. Theft down 6%. Vehicle theft down 13%. Residential burglary down 21%. Yeah. So this massive drop double digit in almost every case here um, is am I reading this correct that this might be partially deterrence uh, because when you put these cameras up, I think it has a sign that says we're tracking big sign, big, big red sign. sign. So I wonder if you could attribute the big red sign versus a lot of crime is serial offenders. And so if there were, you know, 138 entering autos in this neighborhood and it went down to 50 it could be that you caught the two people who are doing 40 or 50 each is that come out in the statistics yet yeah so here's the here's the data we see when you like pull the onion off another layer yeah. is there's kind of two waves that occur the first wave is a massive uptick in what's called the clearance rate that's the rate at which a, the, a crimes actually gets solved an arrest mm -hmm. is made and so you go to a place like fort worth and i just got an update from from their chief since installing Flock six months ago, they've doubled their clearance rate. Wow. Really, there's twice as likelihood that if you commit a crime now in Fort Worth, you're going to get arrested. And so that actually creates an interesting uh, opposite effect that they want, which now it looks like there's a lot more crime in the city because they're making all these arrests. Right. Um, well, they but can then explain what that though. They yeah. can explain it's like, look, we're actually catching these people. And so then what happens is after that first wave, it, it, criminals use social media just like we do. And so when word gets out, they're like, oh, wow, yeah, like that guy got arrested and that guy got arrested and like that guy got arrested. People just stop committing crime. And I know it sounds overly simplistic, but 
the social media component of this is actually quite real where they're on Instagram, they're on Twitter, and they're talking about this. And the, typically a police department will try to follow them, you know, in the ghosts or in the shadows, and they'll see them start talking about the cameras that have been added. Hmm. And crime just goes down. And we do also track like, well, does it just move to a different city? And, and that actually doesn't happen. Normally, these people do just wind up getting a real job. I think that was the most polarizing thing you said here, uh, in terms of your hot take so far, uh, you know, and to to say it in plain English, listen, crime is bad. And we should arrest criminals is not like a super hot take. Um, <laughs> it's pretty obvious that that is what should occur. But we live in a, a very interesting moment in time that has gotten more and more polarized since you launched your company. Mm-hmm. And I would assume you've gotten some pushback on your premise that people who are committing crimes can easily find another job. So let's unpack that for a second here. You said people who are committing these crimes are doing so because um, reading in here, it's profitable. And mm-hmm. it's an easy thing to do. Um, and they can do it right now. And there are jobs available to them, they choose not to take those because committing a crime is faster, easier than getting the job. That's literally your position. Yeah. I mean, if you if you break it down, it's an opportunity cost thing, mm. right? If, I, if I'm looking at, you know, what it takes to go steal a, a catalytic converter mm. and go pull in a couple hundred bucks, it's 15 minutes. And I have, in some cities, zero chance of getting arrested. Yeah. And now there are t- all types of societal issues, criminal justice issues that flock is not trying to solve that that definitely do need to get solved because i think there's a there's a fundamental fundamental issue of why that even crosses your mind and what i believe our job as a company is to do is to increase the opportunity costs so high because it's now a 99% chance you're going to get arrested that even though you might have grown up in an environment or live in an environment where that is considered okay we remove that option we make it too expensive so this is completely logical. Um, if you make it too expensive to steal, you know, uh, from a car, the catalytic converter, a person would say, okay, uh, yeah, I might be able to make 500 bucks stealing that catalytic converter, but I'm going to go to jail for a week, even if I get af- out after a week, it's going to keep increasing the number of times I go to jail and the chance of me getting caught are no longer one in 100. It's one in two. Therefore, maybe, you know, if I uh, go work at Starbucks or drive, uh, you know, um, for DoorDash, I, I can make that money easier. That's a pretty simple uh, premise here. Um, that being said, we have in our city uh, here in the Bay Area, San Francisco, uh, and in California in general, this prop, I think it was 37, where we said anything under $950 is not a crime. And we're seeing massive crime. I'm curious, what your thoughts are and what's happening specifically in San Francisco with criminal justice and in the Bay Area and in California, because I'm thinking you're getting phone calls from a ton of citizens. But I'm wondering what the the cities are doing, because the cities seem to be run by people who believe that crime is being committed because of income inequity. Yeah, so we're proud partners with dozens of cities in the Bay Area. And I know a lot of those chiefs and lieutenants and patrol officers on a first name basis. And the same reason why they joined this industry, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago hasn't changed. Like they want to make safer communities. And they know that the way to do that is to do their job. Like Mm. all of the primary research shows that a more active, more present 
police force leads to a reduction in crime and a safer community. They have their own problems they need to address, you know, which are pretty out there and open. And I think for at least the cities that we do work with, and San Francisco is not one of them, so I can definitely pontificate on my personal opinion of how San Francisco should get fixed, and that might be a pretty fun topic. Let's do but it. For the, but for the places like Milpitas, the places like uh, San Mateo, they have pushed like, hey, we need a police department. This is a logical conclusion in, in, a, in this society, right. and we should also give them modern tools. You know, one of the reasons why Andreessen led our recent round is they looked across all of the industries in America and they're like, wait a second, why hasn't anyone done anything for public safety? Almost every mm. other industry has been flipped upside down but by modern yes. technology. And somehow we've left our police departments completely empty handed. And, and so people who are, you know, in San Francisco who are into social justice and who care about reforming the justice system and sometimes the justice system is obviously um, not blind and certain people get certain sentences and other people don't it's all been proven that is independent of uh should we try to reduce crime in your mind yeah i mean my my perspective is like the country that i choose to live in which i think is incredible america we have a law and order there's a law and if you break it i believe that you should be punished like mm -hmm. that's kind of the society that we it's a un unspoken shanner very spoken handshake that yeah you know there are some that we don't incriminate against like jaywalking yeah but personally if someone breaks into my home or steals my car like yeah this is a bridge too far punishment, yeah. you know it's like come <laughs> on guys like what that's my property <laughs> like so i think yeah. that's a it's a, it's a i think it's a really slippery slope um what do you think of this proposition 47 i mean certainly you're I, up on this I, and the i and the don't think it makes had. sense do, yeah, i mean because we we've done we tried something similar in atlanta a while ago where certain crimes weren't going to be dispatched and it just led to more of that type of crime because the criminals read the newspaper too. So it's like, great. So as long as I keep it below $1,000, no big deal. Right. And I, th I think that's, it's really unfortunate because um, I know a lot of men and women who are in law enforcement and they want to just go do their job, which is yeah. they want to prote you know, protect citizens. It, it, it does seem to me that this type of solution also um, builds a nice case and gets rid of the serial offenders. And if you did do this because you were a first-time offender and you got caught, a first-time offender who gets caught is going to get a lenient sentence. The, the justice system is going to be reasonable, I think, in almost all cases. Um, and then they know how quickly they got caught. I would think having it be so easy to get caught would then lead to less people uh, trying that second and third time. The, the, yeah, the, the, the data that I see you know, let's remove Garrett's opinion and talk about just the primary research is yeah. the punitive nature of the justice system has zero correlation to the likelihood of someone committing a crime. So whether you have a five-year punishment, a one-year punishment, a ten-year punishment has nothing to do with the likelihood you're going to ah, go do it. It's all correlated to the clearance rate because most people, you're not acting rationally, right? You're going to commit a crime. That's yes. an irrational behavior. Mm. So you've jumped past that. So I think there's a there's a really misconstrued connection with like, we've got to be harder. And it's like, actually, being harder isn't this solution. We should be deliberate about punishment, but we but harder is not necessarily better. Actually, just being more effective will be much better. So to restate that, it's better to catch everybody who commits a crime and maybe not give them the longest sentence, but let them know you're just going to get caught. And each time it gets worse. If you go to Walgreens and you do a snatch and grab, you're going to get caught. And if you get caught or if you break into somebody's house, you're going to get caught. 
you break into a car, you're going to get caught. The first time you're going to get a week in jail, the next time you're going to get a month, the next time you're going to get a quarter. That would yeah. actually, a staged system would make it so clear to criminals who are thinking irrationally, I'm going to get caught. And that's actually, I'm going to get caught is better than if I get caught, it's a five-year sentence. Because yeah, the criminals are always going to be thinking, I'm not going to get caught. Why would I'm I get too caught? smart to get caught. I'm going to get away with it. I'm going to I'm going to run. I'm going to hop the fence. They'll never catch me. I'm too stealthy. I'm an above average criminal. So why would I get caught? Right? Everyone's above average. So I think that that is proven to be a better system. Um, mm. And we just need to get more cities to buy into it. Ha I know San Francisco, great ironies of ironies, and Oakland, I believe, uh, were talking about banning cameras before we even implemented them. Um, and that, I'm, forget about license plate reading, but just yeah. in general, the place with the worst crime is now deciding we shouldn't have cameras, which just shows how insane um i think you know not to make this a left or right issue but this certain group of people who i think are very polarizing to the left think about criminal justice which is we should just not prosecute any crimes that are minor in their mind under a thousand dollars or whatever the benchmark is um so have you run up against communities where they say not in our community no way we're going to block you we we have um, I know How those often? groups, uh, only in the areas you just described. So the you Bay Area, San Francisco has, and Oakland have tried to stop you from putting these in. Yeah. And what, what we find is that the majority of elected, uh, there are, there are groups you can imagine who they are, but, uh, like community you know, groups or no, no, just like nonprofit organizations who huh. are fighting that good fight. Um, would that be like the ACLU or would the they, ACLU or, or the, the EFF? Yeah. And we EFF. know those, we have very uh, cordial conversations with them. They're really nice people. I think they're misguided. What's their position on it? The uh, automated license plate readers, ALP. Their technology. position is that it's an invasion of privacy. Okay. And that it perpetuates, um, you know, an, an increased, I guess, injustice against underrepresentative minorities. And I think that's really hard to make an argument when we're talking about cars. Because hmm. I made the point earlier to you, like, I don't know who's in the car and I don't care who's in the car. I said that car was stolen. It's like, hmm. let's get it off the streets. Um, and I also think what, what we find is that most elected officials have a much better pulse of what their community wants. And I've never met an individual in their community that says, I want less police presence. Okay. Everyone wants to be safer. What is the valid part of their argument? If you, if you looked at the ACLU's yeah. uh, argument... What do you think is the most valid that you have taken to heart or you agree with them on? Because there, there I, must be some yeah, common ground. There here. is. Okay. The, there's two things I agree with deeply with them. One is that there's a high risk of data abuse, which is why we care so deeply about how long the data is retained. Got it. Because that, when you get to about – the industry has a track record of having this data stored for per perpetuity. And I think that's crazy. Like that's, that's not worth it. Data now is a liability not an asset when you store it forever in this type of mm -hmm. fashion. So our, in the incumbents in this industry store data forever. They share it very freely and they sell it. And I think that's really bad. I think that's like unethical. I think you have a tight data retention, you monitor, you audit, and you make it transparent of who has access to what data and how they're using it. So like Piedmont, California is a great example. The chief there is leading the way in terms of how to run a police department. He's a customer of our transparency portal. And so every search on our on the cameras that Piedmont PD owns is visible to the public. Hmm. They're not they're not doing anything in hiding. 
Like you want to see every search, every hit, everything they do is right there because they're not they they know what they're doing is right for their community, and I think their community has responded and and. In return, so said, data retention is the. I'm oh, sorry. Continue. Finish. With yeah. That. So data retention, I agree with. Yeah. Um, and then 30, I think the second we put was, it at 30 days. We put it at 30 uh, days, and if a city says they want it for 15, that's fine too. We just think 30 is a good baseline. So nobody using Flock is allowed to set it at over 30 days. You can if your elected officials voted into law. Got so it. there are some cities where you know I don't want to represent every community in the country. Got I it. have an opinion. Let's say you live in the Bay Area, not in San Francisco, and that elected those elected no officials in say, San Francisco, yeah, yeah. Those people say we think forty-five days is the best retention policy. We talked with our chief. We've talked about it as a community. Got it. Then we say, great. We're so glad you had that conversation. Would you let we people love set purchase. it at indefinitely, or have you no. let them set it at no? What's the longest We've, somebody has set it at? I think 90 days. 90 days. So is there an upper limit to where you would let people put it? I would imagine a year, because then you start to okay. also just get into like storage costs. And Got it. it okay. gets pretty expensive for both sides to do it Great. much longer than that, so unless you're selling the The data. reason I ask those questions is because people hearing you talk would say, oh, maybe you are letting them run amok and you're not actually watching the store. But in fact, you are. The longest is 90 days to the best of your knowledge. And you wouldn't yeah. let somebody set it over a year. So you actually do have a cap in mind. We now, do. You also do not allow the pictures of who's in the car as part of this. You're just giving mm -hmm. them the license plate. There is no facial yeah. recognition. You Correct. must be getting asked all the time to put facial recognition on this. And in fact, they the police already have this technology at all of the um, bridges and tunnels that have easy pass in our community mm -hmm. and they take a picture of who's driving and they send yeah. it to you or when you get a speeding ticket they already have that so yeah. you've set your license plate reading to take out photos when in fact traffic cameras already have faces plus license plates being done yeah Am i mean i, I think at the end yeah, you are you are correct. And, and to that same point, AT&T and, you know, Apple know where your phone is at all times, right? And yeah. if they need to get to you, they can. Yeah. Um, and that's that gets used appropriately at times. So I think for us, it's about drawing our own lines. You know, I have a, a very diverse company in terms of politics, religion, or everything, everything we have covered. And we have to set our own boundaries that we get comfortable with because there's a right way to solve crime and there's a wrong way. And we're trying to do the right way. So um, Facebook has had an issue with their employees uh, stalking and looking at private messages, location data, etc. all down the line over the years, multiple cases of engineers doing this basically stalking uh, ex girlfriends or uh, and it's 100% men doing it so far to mm -hmm. the best of my knowledge in the cases mm -hmm. I've seen. Um, you are now the owner of a set of data that is ginormous. How do you ensure that your employees do not stock their exes or otherwise compromise your data? Yeah, so there's, there's both a legal component and then an operational component. So the legal component is all, I'll make one minor modification to your statement. We're actually not the owner. So from a huh. legal perspective, it's not our data. We are the custodian of it, you know, from a hosting perspective, but legally, myself, my engineers, anyone have no legal right to go look at the data. Okay, but you technically um, can, because you would have to tweak the algorithm at times and look at it. So we're in the sort of Alexa category where so it is encrypted, though, yeah. at rest. Okay. So an engineer, 
would have to go incredibly rogue, and I'm not even sure technically how they would pull this off, would have right. to then go unencrypt that image, hmm. which I don't think they could actually do, um, and then go pull it, and they're, they're now so pulling a random image. So you can't even, if one of your customers, you know, in San Ramon said, hey, we think something's not working here, the license plates are doing ones for L's, uh, yeah. you can't even go look at their data set? So here's the operational piece. So there's a legal piece of like, we, we can't go access it in bulk. An operational right. component is we do provide customer support. And so the only thing anyone on my staff can see is the last image captured. So that if someone does call and say, hey, you know, there was a hurricane down in Florida and our, we, our camera's really foggy. It's like, well, it. really? Like, so we can pull up that last image and say like, it. it is foggy. We so will they go, can't we'll then go, truck go roll. find their ex-girlfriend or ex-wife's you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Track it. So you yeah. really there's no god mode like other companies have unfortunately built at times and had to undo. Because the, the I, in looking at the EFF's position, and they tend to take a pretty all or nothing. They believe there mm. should be no license plate reading uh, services. Yeah, that's right. Uh, is their position because uh, just looking at their site. Location, I'll just read from their site, location-based information like license plate data can be very revealing by matching your car to a particular, particular time, date, location, and then building a database of that information over time. Law enforcement can learn where you work and live, what doctor you go to, which religious services you attend, and who your friends are. But in this statement of how they're framing the discussion, they the overtime is a key component here, and the overtime is 90 days at best. and you're not you do have location but you don't yeah. have pictures of the driver so yeah we just know really location thought for the through car. their objection haven't you I, well i just think look like i i like you i'm a normal person that's a citizen in america that wants to continue living in a country that has these same ideals hmm. and i think we also want to live in a place that's safe yeah and so there's got to be a world where we can have both of these yeah and i think the part where i tend to disagree with the eff and the aclu is like they're talking about a world where literally our police departments can't do their job. We're going to give them no tools, no technology. We're going to give them a, you know, a rabbit's foot and say, good luck out there. And I just think that's a bit misguided when there are ways to enforce transparency and accountability and give tools. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think my team and myself put a lot of energy into how to build this so that every city, regardless of politics or wealth level, can be safe. Got it. And there are other uh, services, vigilance solutions, learn system that includes billions of license plates, mm -hmm. uh, and they are selling that service. Maybe you could speak to, you know, uh, their approach versus yours. Yeah, I mean, they, they are the incumbents that, in my opinion, kind of took a wrong turn. They mm -hmm. sell their data, they store it forever. The majority of their revenue comes from data sales, not from solving crime. And so wow. they actually take all that aggregated data and sell it. To anyone who has the right price. And I think that's a really slippery slope. Yeah. Um, Vigilant Solutions is your competitor, I guess. Yep. That's our okay. largest competitor. Do they make the the like real-time license plate scanning stuff as well? Or it, they just so have the database more? The, their, their primary focus is the database. Mm -hmm. They have a camera, but you know, the biggest difference is you and I were talking about, we obviously read the license plate, but what we really pick up is what we call the vehicle fingerprint. So mm. some criminals are smart enough to take off their license plate. Yep. We're still going to pick up your make, your model. Perfect. What kind of stickers you have. Do you have damage? Do you have a roof rack? Do you have aftermarket tires? Like we're looking across exactly how a detective would. 
And so we can provide that same type of search experience. So you know, there was a recent case where it was a drive-by shooting in a town. The criminal was smart, had no license plate, but wasn't that smart because he drove that exact same car through the neighborhood two days earlier to case it. And so with our system, they could easily do a lookalike search and say, hey, I'm looking for that exact same car. Have we seen it? Oh, yes, we have. And there it is with a license plate on the exact same road. So with a traditional system, you can't do something like that. And yeah, so you don't want to be in vigilance business and vigilance business is truly scary. I would be with the ACLU on going after vigilant. And I think the ACLU should be actually pro what you're doing. Vigilant has, according to the Wall Street Journal, more than 30 license plate scans for every registered vehicle on the nation's roads today. So they have 30 moments in time for everybody's car. That seems like mass surveillance and a private company should not be allowed to do it. What you're doing seems amazing, um, and people should be able to do it. Um, obviously, Clearview AI scraped social media for a billion faces. We had them on the program. Um, I, I also think the tracking of who uses this, because um, you, you have, I'm, I'm certain, a log of every time law enforcement looks up license plates, and they yep. can't turn their logs off. That's correct. Um, the audit is required. And whether you're a city council person or you are the mayor or the chief or a regular citizen, you can get access to that log. Uh, it's public mm-hmm. record information. Wow. See, I, that was the thing I couldn't get out of Clearview AI's um, CEO. They seem to be like, we're making s- enterprise software. You set up the settings, i.e. how many mm-hmm. days do you want to do it? Or do you want to log? And he was kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I guess people log. I guess they can log. I think it needs to be like a really detailed audit log so when you do a search it says jason calacanis is searching for a black tesla model x you know in this zip code and it's yep. like it says conf- please confirm that jason you are jason calacanis you want to do it and it should be a camera on the computer that takes my picture and i use a biometric or whatever or my password to do it so i can't claim that i didn't know that i was searching for that because remember there was always this thing in every mafia show oh, i'm gonna get this guy to run these plates for me i'm gonna get this guy to run yeah. these plates for me yeah, like it's every yeah sopranos episode or y- something y- yeah and for us we take it another step as well which is we we do require a case code you know or a kind of ah. an open co- code before you perform a search so it's like you Perfect. gotta be actually working a real case like if you're just yeah. checking stuff out and i found that you know when you introduce those kind of small speed bumps in a product that maybe if someone was going to take a wrong turn and you say, well, wait, what case are you working on? And they're like, I'm going to cancel. Yeah. I'm not going to, that's exactly my point is like, just give them that moment to really think through, like, are you going to search for your ex-wives or your friend's ex-girlfriend's license plate? Mm -hmm. Because your picture is going to be on it. Really appreciate uh, your thoughtfulness about this. I think what you're doing is uh, really amazing in the world and appreciate you answering the hard questions. Um, You know, I, I think, this is one of these spaces that we really need to ask the hard questions and we really need leaders in these companies to to be thoughtful about it. And you've turned out to be uh, even more thoughtful than I thought you were. And yes, I did go to your sales team first and ask them a bunch of questions and they passed. <laughs> well, that's, that's good. Secret shopper approval. So I appreciate it. Well, you, I'm sure you do it yourself, right? You, you send oh, somebody in there to talk to your sales team. And yeah, I was trying to figure it out. It's like, I mean, and and let's be honest here, for every good player putting out a very affordable product, that means the rogue players who anybody could build right now mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, maybe two weeks of hacking, 
I would say maybe two weeks, you could take any video stream, and then pump it to the APIs that are out there, do the license plate yeah. recognition, dump it into a database. I'm not saying they could, you know, um, rebuild the whole thing, but company, but you could do this rogue right now. And I'm certain there are people who have done it rogue already. Yeah. Um, I was wondering also, like, could somebody just take their phone and put it on their dashboard yeah. and have a license plate reader on their dashboard in an app and then track every car on every road? If you were an Uber driver, you would be able to build a database of every car on the road. Is there any I, software or companies doing that? I don't think there's any companies. I know I saw a, a Hacker News post of a guy who modified his Tesla to turn it into an automatic license plate reader. And so he was picking wow. up every single car he drove by, which to me is like, yeah, it's not to, to your point, like, when I see the groups like the ACLU or the EFF push out, like this shouldn't exist. I'm like, it already exists and the cat's out of the bag. Like it's never going to go back. So let's actually just talk about how to implement it in a way that makes us all comfortable. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that guy did it in a weekend, right? And now it's not a scalable product that you could sell, but technology's there. I mean, the, the wow. Tesla has a good enough camera to get this done. I mean, not only does the Tesla have a good camera, you're... Your last iPhone or your Android from three, like four generations ago. ago. Yeah, yeah, four durations ago, you could literally put on your um, dashboard, you put on your your dash, and uh, be able to make a video that uploads it to the cloud. And uh, this is not rocket science anymore, folks. And no. that one could actually, you know, make a video clip and who's in the car, and you could put it in reverse and get every single person's face and then tag yeah. their face to a license plate. So, and there is somebody out there doing this right now. We need more good actors with great prices so that those bad actors don't have their products in market. Garrett, thanks for coming on the pod and we'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. 